Okay, let's talk about the next patient you saw. The next lady is 56 years old. In December of 2005, she presented at an outside institution with what was described as a classic inflammatory carcinoma. She received neoadjuvant chemotherapy with ACT after a biopsy was consistent with the triple negative breast cancer. After the ACT, she underwent a mastectomy. At surgery, she had a 2.8 centimeter tumor with 6 out of 20 positive lymph nodes. She then received radiation therapy, and she did well until February of 2010. At that time, she presented with a bone and pleural recurrence. The pleural fluid was tapped. The cells were positive for adenocarcinoma. It was again tested for estrogen receptors and HER2 nu, all of which were negative. She embarked on systemic chemotherapy. Alopecia was a big concern of hers, and at that time she received vinorelbine and bevacizumab. I want to add that she has a history of inflammatory bowel disease and had undergone a bowel resection and had a colostomy. She also received bisphosphonates, oligonic acid, and she received chemotherapy with that regimen from February of 2010 until basically February of 2011 when she presented with disease progression. So that's about where she is right now? Since late February, she has begun on capecitabine. And how's she doing? Well, it's a little early to say. She's probably been on chemotherapy for about six weeks. She looks well. She does have some symptomatology. She has some cough and some dyspnea and exertion. No significant bone pain with her. Note that she is receiving a low dose of fentanyl, which she's had since a diagnosis of recurrence. Is she working? She is not working right now. Has she worked before? She has worked in the past. She was in sales. Right. I'm just kind of curious before Hal kind of discusses this. When you started on the Cape Cytobine, at that point, she had been on bevacizumab for a year. Was she still on the vinorelbine? She was on vinorelbine until disease progression. She had intermittent GI toxicity, and because of her inflammatory bowel disease, and because of the wavering thoughts on the bevacizumab, we sort of stopped the bevacizumab as we went along and continued her on the vinorelbine. Did you mention when she had BRCA testing? She was BRCA tested because she was diagnosed at about 50, and she's of Ashkenazi Jewish descent, and she does not have any of the common mutation. What was it like meeting her, Hal? Well, this is a woman who is shouldering a lot of responsibilities. So she is a single mom. She has kids who very much need her presence. She is sandwiched between an older generation where she is doing a lot of providing for her parents as well. And then on top of that, she has metastatic breast cancer. And I would have said she was a little more symptomatic when I looked at her. She had a cough, some minor respiratory distress with effort, and, you know, she had moderate pain. She described it more sort of discomfort than a sharp pain. But so here's a woman who is coping with a lot of real illness and at the same time has tremendous demands on her outside the hospital space. Actually, we talked at one point with her about the convenience of oral chemotherapy. I was thinking that, you know, maybe it's nice to be on the capecitabine because you don't have to be in the clinic every week. It's orally available. There's a little more flexibility to life. And she made a fascinating comment, which was that she actually missed coming to the clinic. You know, her oncology team has created such a warm and comforting and safe, I think is the word she used, space, that she actually 
missed coming in once a week, not because she missed her chemo, but because she missed that time where she was really cared for. And this actually was a comment echoed by many patients today, and I think it's a tribute both to the clinic itself, which Rich and his team have built, but also to the powerful experience patients have interacting with doctors, that they feel so safe coming in that that's actually a big draw for these women with advanced breast cancer in many instances. So the thoracentesis issues were interesting because I think this patient needs a thoracentesis, and Rich has recommended one to her. But getting her to accept that and welcome that as an important palliative part of her treatment plan has been really tough because she had a miserable time with her prior procedure. What happened with the prior procedure? It was painful? I think it was twofold. I think it was painful, and that can be painful at times, and I think that it was a tremendous emotional experience to diagnosis of the disease recurrence. And I think she correlates a lot of the diagnosis of recurrence with that episode. Interesting. What dose and schedule of capecitabine did you start? So I tend to use capecitabine one week on, one week off schedule. She was not very symptomatic. And so because of her inflammatory bowel disease, I did have some concerns with capecitabine. So we have titrated her dose up and she's now taking 3000 milligrams one week on, one week off. What was the initial dose? I think I probably started at 2,000 milligrams total. Hal, how do you approach dose and schedule capecitabine? Do you use one week on, one week off? I usually just use two weeks on, one week off, though the Memorial Sloan Kettering Group has reported a comparable results in an open-label phase two experience with the seven-on, seven-off schedule. It's not a drug where we have a lot of information on what the optimal dose and schedule should be. Almost nobody uses the FDA-approved dose because there's really prohibitive hand-foot syndrome and mucositis for most patients at that dose. So I'd like to just throw out a little quick bevacizumab query here. And I'll ask both of you. I'll start with Hal. In general, if you have a patient with triple negative breast cancer, metastatic disease, who's symptomatic from the disease, kind of sounds like this lady, what's the usual regimen you would like to use? Well, I do frequently use paclitaxel and bevacizumab as a first-line treatment or as she received vinarelbine and bevacizumab. And, you know, there are data that bevacizumab in triple negatives works at least as well as it does in other kinds of breast cancer because of the faster trajectory Of triple negative breast cancer, the tumor control length is often shorter than other kinds of breast cancer, and the response rates are comparable as they are in all those subsets. So I do try it, and many people tolerate it quite well. I do not continue it beyond progression, as was not done here. Rich? If I'm going to use bevacizumab, I'm going to use it with paclitaxel based on the data that we have. With that said, alopecia was a big concern of hers, and at that time we didn't have as much less encouraging data for the non-paclitaxel, so that's why we opted to use it, vitarelbine. I think I just read an editorial you wrote about bevacizumab, right? Am I thinking about the right thing? I, Very I good did, editorial. Uh, thank you. All tied up with a ribbon right. in the JCO. Right. Maybe you can summarize your thoughts and you know how each of you would feel if bevacizumab is not available. You're saying that in general you're using it, how your editorial and your comments are a little bit lukewarm, I guess, but You know, how bad are you going to feel, if at all, if you can't use it? So how? Well, remember, the FDA is in the process of withdrawing its accelerated approval, which was granted in 2007. That does not mean that you can't use bevacizumab. In fact, 
NCCN and many third-party payers have made clear they would continue to support off-label use. I think that there were several things I was trying to bring out in the editorial. The first is that following the ECOG 2100 experience, there were profound hopes that bevacizumab would really be a treatment that changed markedly the natural history of advanced breast cancer. And the subsequent trials, including the Avado trial and the Ribbon one, have shown some benefits for bevacizumab, but nowhere near the benefits seen in that original study. Secondly, the drug is not without side effects, and there are minor side effects, including headache and some hypertension issues, and increasingly there may be concerns over more profound cardiac issues. There has been a meta-analysis to suggest a greater incidence of congestive heart failure in patients who receive bevacizumab, and that's still being sorted out. The other point I tried to bring out in the editorial is that the regulatory decisions that have been made by four different regulatory bodies really reflect not so much different data, but different interpretations of the data. So FDA granted accelerated approval because they thought the ECOG 2100 data originally showed a compelling difference between the existing standard of care, and as subsequent data have emerged, they don't see that same compelling difference. The European authorities had granted approval for bevacizumab in combination with any taxane-based therapy, but after reviewing the Avado data, which used docetaxel, they decided that there wasn't sufficient benefit with docetaxel. The NCCN stood by its original endorsement of paclitaxel plus bevacizumab as being a preferred option for treatment of advanced breast cancer based on trade-off considerations of improvements in symptoms and likely toxicity. And finally, the UK National Institute for Health, the NICE, did a clear cost-effectiveness analysis and suggested that the cost of bevacizumab at more than 100,000 pounds per quality-adjusted year was beyond those supported by the government. So those are not differences in understanding the data. Those are differences in interpretation of the data. And I think that that is the real challenge with this drug in breast cancer, that there is something going on there, but... It's been hard to tease out exactly how much and exactly in whom, and that, from a regulatory point of view, has made it very vulnerable. So, Rich, again, what's your perspective on this? If, for whatever reason, you no longer are able to access bevacizumab for that kind of situation, does that bother you or not really? Well, you never want to lose something that you consider part of your armamentarium. I think the problem with bevacizumab, it's not quite as good as it was initially made out to be, and it's probably not as bad as it's now being portrayed as. I like to have it as an option. I read Hal's editorial. If I'm going to use it, I'm only going to use it at this point with paclitaxel. So getting back to this lady, did she have any problems other than the bowel with the bevacizumab, any hypertension, nosebleeds, anything else? None whatsoever. You know, it's interesting because she raised the question, I don't know if you recall, about how good a drug needs to be for it to be approved. Well, this was very interesting. She's a very savvy woman. And we talked about triple negative breast cancer and how that has emerged as a real entity in the past five or six years, how there's now an advocacy movement around it, how drug companies are taking special interest in triple negative disease and developing drugs specifically for triple negative disease. And she was very gratified by all of those changes because there was... Rich, would you agree? There's sort of a degree of suspiciousness to her that somehow the medico-industrial industry is not taking her case as seriously as it needs to be. And I think she was very aware, for instance, of the emerging data on PARP inhibitors and expressed a certain degree of frustration that perhaps they weren't already in the market and that they were only available in limited trials. And that was overlain by some other issues Rich had referred her to a colleague at a major cancer center in New York, and 
he did so so that she might be able to access some of these emerging drugs that are being studied in triple negative breast cancers or some of the PARP inhibitors that he didn't have access to in his clinical trial portfolio. But she interpreted that as things are bad. And this was another very revealing part of the dialogue. So she took away from this suggestion that she go to New York to see someone in an academic center, the concern that, you know, he really wasn't very hopeful that there would be good news down the road. And so interestingly, this access to these hope for and hopeful drugs simultaneously created this anxiety that she really wasn't doing well. So obviously she is interested in the possibility of some kind of new approach to her disease. Is there anything out there, Hal, right now, you know, any trial, any agent that maybe you can get excited about? Well, I think we've not heard the last from the PARP inhibitors or aniparib in this context, and there's still important things to be done there with that class of drugs. There are other products coming along. There remains interest in the angiogenesis inhibitors. There remains interest in different chemotherapies and the platinating chemotherapies and some of the newer ones like aribulin. There remains interest in new biologics and some of the drugs that target the MET pathway are of interest in triple negative tumors. So there is a lot of stuff going on, and yet... It hasn't all coalesced around a single take-home message or a single targeted path, as has the HER2 story with trastuzumab, for instance. You know, you mentioned that even without a family history, you had her BRCA tested. I'm curious how, you know, people talk about this situation, a not younger patient, a patient without a family history, but with metastatic triple negative disease. Should they have genetic testing? Would it change how you think about platinums? Would it change how aggressive you'd be about trying to get her a PARP inhibitor trials? What do you think, Al? Well, it's an interesting question. You know, at the moment, there aren't reasons to know her BRCA status with regard to selecting her treatments for metastatic breast cancer. That may change, especially if the data for Olaparib or ABT888 continue to emerge with strong activity in hereditary breast cancers. I think there will be more of a push, especially in a woman like this who has a triple negative tumor and is of Ashkenazi ancestry. You know, the majority of cancers in BRCA1-associated tumors are triple negative. Having said that, Judy Garber in our program has looked and even if you have a triple negative breast cancer, if you're over age 50, your chances of being a BRCA1 or 2 carrier are still pretty low. It's only on the order of about 10%. Maybe that goes up to about 20% if you're of Ashkenazi ancestry, but it's still the minority of patients. How do you actually handle this in your practice, Rich? The genetic testing? Yeah. Well, I will basically follow the guidelines. Now, she was sent for genetic testing because her initial diagnosis was done just about at the age of 50, and she was of Ashkenazi Jewish descent. So we'll test everybody who's less than 50. But what about the, quote, garden variety patient, you know, 55, 60 years old, great condition, bad metastatic triple negative disease, no family history, would you test? I typically would not test, not unless it was specific criteria for a study. 